Brothers and sisters, you can uh, turn your Bibles. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 21. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. We've been uh, kind of in this uh, section, including Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Um, but as we, as we get started, I, I wanted to say, I bet that many of you are, are probably like me when you, when you purchase some kind of item, right? Like you, you go on Amazon or, or these other places and you, and you look at reviews trying to see, uh, you know, if the purchase is going to be a good buy before you buy. You know, you might watch YouTube videos and people unboxing it and showing you all the pros and cons of those things. Uh, but we want to know with, with confidence that this is going to be a good purchase. But even more so if you're not going to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars, but maybe you're spending thousands of dollars. Say you're going to put a roof on your house. You don't want to just, you know, grab the first roofer you find on the, on the you know, yellow pages or on the internet. You want, to, you want to talk to people that have dealt with different companies. You're going to ask them, hey, who did your roof? Did they do a good job? Has there been any trouble? You want to know that they're insured. You want to know that it, their product lasts. And you also want to know that they're going to be in town in a year or two years or five years when, when you have trouble. You're going to talk with people and try to, try to discern that. But even more, say you're going to have heart surgery. So you're going to have something that's a matter of life and death. You probably don't want the first surgeon that just got out of medical school to do that procedure. You want someone that's, that's done this procedure numerous times, that's had good success over and over again as you, as you trust them because you're trusting them with your life. Our confidence grows in people as we see a track record of good work and good service. And so this morning, Paul is going to help us to understand why we can be utterly confident in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who has a track record of always being faithful. For he is our resurrected king who takes a seat at the Father's right hand. He is the ruler high above all other rulers or titles and even spiritual beings. This reality gives us hope for the present and assurance for the future. A theologian once said that the resurrection proclaims Christ lives and that forever. And that the exaltation proclaims he reigns and that forever. And this is the greatest news that we could possibly hear. And news that instills extreme confidence in us about Jesus. That Jesus is alive and he's always good always righteous, and always seated on his throne, ruling from now and forevermore. He will never fail, and he will not be removed. He is the surety of our salvation, the surety of our resurrection, and he will ultimately secure victory in himself. So this morning, brothers and sisters, we have confidence in Christ. This is our main idea. We have confidence in Christ because of his resurrection and because of his enthronement or reign, and we rejoice that this same power is at work in us who believe. So let's, let's ask the Lord to lead us to see that, to believe that, and live in light of that reality. Father, would you help us, God? Would you help us to be joyful? Would you help us to be uh, fearless as we, as we see that you are alive and that you are reigning and that you are perfectly faithful? Lord, would you help us to, to see these truths, Lord? Would you help us to, to live in light of them, God? Would you, would you help us to, to crucify sin and to pursue you in righteousness and hope? And Father, would you be glorified in us as we proclaim your good name today? Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we're in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 21. But again, our, our section is 20 and 21. It says this, brothers and sisters. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And here's where our passage begins. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul tells us there's two massively important realities that we as Christians must factor in when we think about Jesus. One is that he's resurrected, that he's alive both now and forevermore by the power of God. And two, that he has ascended to heaven and he is seated at God's right hand, ruling forevermore. And so as we talk about these two ideas, let's start with the first one and see how the resurrection proves Jesus' victory over death. See, in the resurrection, Jesus' full power, I'm sorry, God's full power is on display in resurrecting Jesus, our Messiah. The Father was pleased to raise up the Son through the power of the Spirit because of His righteousness, through the righteousness of His life and sacrifice. And this resurrection proves that Jesus Blood is able to atone for the life of sinners who place their faith in him. It shows that his work is accepted by God, that he was actually able to make atonement. And the ever-present reality from all men for all time leading up to this point, all of us recognize this is from Adam to to now is, is death. All of us have tasted it in some way or another, whether it was a family member who died or a close friend. Or we see tragedies on TV if it hasn't hit close to home. We, we still see the, the tragedy in some sense, the, the wrongness of death, and we hate it. But because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, his perfect death, the sting of death has been removed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that on one day when, when Christ returns, death itself will be totally swallowed up in victory. It will be no more. And we long for that day. But as we think about the resurrection, Acts 2.24, Peter tells us that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus. The grave strength was nothing in comparison to the matchless glory of King Jesus and the resurrection power that worked in him. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think right now that Jesus is alive. Right now, he is living, and he will be living forever, never to die again. We all long for some sense of permanency and and to some degree, you know, a desire to last, but we're let down by the ravages of time or we're let down by weakness. But that is not so with Jesus. When we pray, we're not lifting our voices to someone dead and buried in the ground. No, we're, we're praying to the one who is alive, who is seated on the throne, never to die again. One who has true authority and power. 
one who has the ability to heal the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, the one who weeps with those who weep, the one who has the keys over death and Hades themselves. What hope when we think about our own struggles with sin and our fight against the enemy. See, right now, Jesus hears your prayers and he is working through the power of his spirit to save and to encourage you and to uphold you and to love you even now. And so as you think about this reality, how does, how does the idea that we have a living Savior encourage you this morning? You know, maybe as you, as you long to see life and growth and joy in you, how does the reality of his life and joy and resurrection encourage that in you? And where does the fear of death, if you, if you find yourself wrestling with that, you've been thinking about that, you know, this, this thing that might threaten to, to steal your daily joy and maybe it even cause you to be disobedient at times, how does Jesus' resurrection instill confidence in you to live for him in face of those fears? So the reality is, is that we see that Jesus is resurrected, but not just that. What glorious good news for us is that the resurrection shows the reality that we too will be raised with him. Not just he is raised, but we will be raised. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, it is not just wishful thinking to say that there is something to come after death. We know that God has a plan and a purpose, not just for this life, but also for the one to come. And his resurrection is a demonstration that our hope in Christ is not in vain. It is not hevel. He is the first fruits of our salvation, brothers and sisters. This is what Romans 6, 4 and 5 says. It says, We were buried therefore with him in baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been buried with Christ and we are raised with Christ. And so there's this reality for believers that we will be resurrected by him. But it's not just that we will be resurrected. If we look just a little further in Ephesians 2 chapter or verse 5, it says that that reality, resurrection reality, isn't just future, but it is present. And that we have now been spiritually raised with Christ. We too experience this reality of the resurrection now because he spiritually raised us from the dead. And we also will experience it in the future when our bodies are raised and glorified. We experience the joy of the good that Christ has already done. And we hope in the total victory that he has assured for us. And so as we think about this reality of the resurrection, one of the dangers for believers today is to be tempted, that we can be tempted that this isn't truth. You know, this past Thursday was Halloween and I don't know if you were out in your neighborhoods walking around, but I saw lots of, you know, really interesting superhero figures and a giant walking Pikachu, which was cool. I mean, it was like inflatable Pikachu. It was neat. But I also saw a lot of dark costumes, you know, kids dressed up as skeletons and, and zombies walking around, shambling around with their faces contorted. Where are we like that? Walking around as if we're spiritually dead with no power or purpose, shambling from one moment to the next. 
You know, do you think about this? Do you, do you mindlessly go back to your old sins over and over without ex- experiencing freedom? Why is this? Is it, is it fear that Christ cannot possibly be as good as he says? Is it that you, you maybe don't think that Christ can help you overcome your sin because you've been dealing with it for so long, whatever that sin is? Paul says this should not be so. Our union with Christ breaks the power of sin in us. The, 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 the door to the prison is open, and this passage in Romans 6 says the chains themselves are broken. Sin doesn't have any dominion over, over you because Christ died for you. He died to it. The enemy wants nothing more than you to be stuck in that cell, even in the freedom that you have in Christ, putting the shackles back on yourselves, living in that way. But because we have a risen Savior, we are encouraged to draw near with confidence. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness, and he encourages us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For he lives and intercedes even for us in our weakness. We have confidence in Christ, and it leads to joy and hope and takes away fear, for he is alive. He has broken the the chains of sin in our lives, and we too are and will be resurrected with him. So this is the first piece we see. But not just that. Not only do we see the reality of the resurrection showing that Jesus has defeated death, but that Christ's exaltation, his, his reign in heaven, proves that he is king above all. We see this as well, and we're going to talk through this. There's four points on your screen. I can't read them, but I hope that you can. <laughs> I've got them on my paper, so it's, it's good. But, you know, as we think about our Constitution for a minute, um, the constitutional system that we have in place is, is really kind of beautiful and, and brilliant because it places limits on the power of people because we know that power tends to corrupt those that have it, Right? You know, these limits are the different branches and the way that they balance each other out and they can kind of offset bad laws and stuff that are passed. There's, there's mechanisms in place for, for things to be changed if they were running amok. And I, I, I would be willing to bet that none of us would love the prospect of any man or woman from either party ruling as a president over our country indefinitely until they die. You know, not just for four or eight years, but for 50 years. And the reason is, is because the, the temptation to abuse power is so great. That is why, you know, we think that things like term limits sound like good ideas. But as Paul turns his attention from the resurrection to the exaltation of Jesus, he says that we should be confident precisely because Jesus is enthroned forever at the Father's right hand. In contrast to worldly leaders, Paul tells us that the one who is most faithful, most true, most wise, and most good, the one who always makes right judgments and always rules with wisdom and honor is seated on an eternal throne. The hope of Israel and of all of mankind is that there would be a king from the line of David who sits on a throne forever. Psalm 110, verse 1, we hear this uh, where David says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's talking about who his Lord would be, sit at my right hand until I make enemies, your enemies, your footstool. This is such an important messianic prophecy that it's quoted something like 30 times in the New Testament. 
pointing to the reality that the, the Messiah will rule and reign. And in Matthew 26, 64, Jesus tells the Sanhedrin before he's crucified, when he's standing before them, that these words are about him. He is this exalted king who will sit on a throne both now and forevermore. He is the one who accomplishes salvation and he takes his rightful place in glory. And so as we think about this idea of Jesus being uh, ascending and, and seated on the throne, there's so many cool ideas that, that we can unpack here. And so let's just try to do that for a moment. Let's, let's try to talk about some of the things that we see. And the first is this. Jesus is seated as the high priest. The fact that Jesus is seated as the high priest shows that he has accomplished the sacrificial work that makes sinners righteous. Hebrews 10 tells us about this idea where he says, this was the problem. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the problem. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has completed his work. His blood is a worthy sacrifice to make us clean and pure. Even if you could somehow, you know, go to the Smokies and, and try to capture all of the animals that live there. I don't know, there'd be countless animals. And you could, if you could build an altar big enough to hold all of those animals and you, you sacrificed all of them, all of that blood to the Lord, their blood could never add up in value enough to take away even one of your sins. Such was the cost of your sin. Too great for us to be able to pay. But through Jesus' work as both our high priest and the perfect sacrifice, his blood atones for all of the sins, for all of those who place their faith in him in the past and in the present and into the future. And the passage says for us that he goes and he sits down. It is done. He has completed his work. <laughs> he doesn't need to scurry around anymore because it is finished. And if you've got the picture in your mind, I was, I was thinking about this as I was talking with Art. He was saying, it's like this, like imagine you have new carpet in your house and, and your, one of your kids is carrying a, a plate full of spaghetti and you're sitting on your seat. You know, you're probably on the edge of your seat just waiting to try to catch it if they're going to spill that spaghetti on your new carpet. You know, we're fearful that, that they would mess it up. That's not how Christ sits on his seat. It's not possible for us to mess up what he has accomplished. He sits down fully, completing his work forevermore. Nothing can cause him to stand out of that if he doesn't desire to. And so this matters. This matters for us because it means that your sins all of them are forgiven at the cross if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior. When the enemy seeks to shame you for your past, Jesus' blood declares that you are forgiven, that you are clean. See, the enemy wants nothing more than for us to lead lives as Christians in a defeated and a downcast way, living like we're not plugged into the power source of the Spirit like Art was talking about last week from his analogy. It's true that we're sinners. And it's true that we were enemies of God. And yet Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
He came to die in our place so that we can be free to worship, that we can be free to love him and and to serve him in confidence that everything we do can be pleasing to him if done through the Holy Spirit's power. The one we trust in to provide salvation is seated as proof that we are made clean in him. So we need not fear devils, and we need not fear our own self-condemnation because the blood of Christ speaks a better word over us. So this is part of the reality is that he is our seated high priest, but not only that, but he intercedes for us. According to his blood, he pleads it for us. You know, I'm so encouraged when, when anybody in the church or people I know say that, you know, they're praying for me or praying for my family. You know, I'm sure that you've experienced that, the beauty of that in small group where people are just encouraging you and lifting you up to the Lord. It's, it's always a, an amazing thing to think about. But as we think about Christ interceding for us, how amazing is the reality that Christ is continually praying for us to the Father? He is faithful to do this in an ongoing way. He doesn't get tired like we do and and fall asleep in the midst of his prayers. And he he doesn't forget to do that sometimes like we do as well. But he is utterly faithful without weakness and carries out his task perfectly. Romans 8, 31 and verse 34 tell us, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is to condemn? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? And who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's interceding, not just raised and and seated, but interceding. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ loves us, loves his bride. And he is praying for us to the Father as our intercessor. This is why there's nothing that can separate us from his love because he has secured it and he is praying even for our perseverance. And so where does this reality that we have a great intercessor in Christ praying for you, how does this reality shed light on your present struggle with suffering or in your present struggle in praying to him regularly? Or maybe in in parenting. How does this reality help you if you're struggling with depression or fear or anxiety? But also, how does it help you when you're thriving? When you're walking in joy and you're walking in obedience with the Spirit and enjoying His leadership of you? How does it inform all of those things? And where does Christ's prayer for you encourage you in your daily desire for obedience and service to Him? You see, we regularly encourage one another to be praying for God delights to work through the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. But how awesome is it that the Son is always praying for us? And his prayers like the Spirit's intercession for us are always according to the will of God. This is what helps me get out of bed in the morning to know that this is true, both now and forevermore. So we see that we have a high priest who is interceding, praying, and pleading his blood over us. But there's also the idea that we also see is that Jesus is an ascended man. Tim Chester was really helpful in highlighting this in his book on the ascension, that one of the most remarkable aspects of this is that there's a human being now in the presence of God, not just in the future, but now. Human flesh is now with God. This is one of the central tenets of the ascension, and there is an ascended man who is 
also fully God, currently sitting on the throne at the Father's right hand. He doesn't just put on flesh when he comes to earth and then discard it, but he returns to heaven in the flesh as well. So just as Jesus dwells in the presence of the Father now, we who are washed by his blood, who are covered by his righteousness, will be able to stand there as well without fear because he is our forerunner. He is the one that we are identified with. And as he stands, we too will be able to stand by his righteousness. And the last thing that we see here as we develop this idea is that Jesus is far above all others as king of kings. If you look down in verse 21, verse 21 says this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So this is his rule. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Because of Jesus' position on the throne, Jesus has the full authority and power of the Father. We shouldn't be thinking primarily earthly powers and earthly rulers that he's over here, though they would be, you know, would be included by implication. But here Paul is making clear that Jesus is over all of the spiritual powers that operate in the universe. These different descriptors are clarified from Ephesians 3.10 and 6.12. 3.10 tells us these rulers and authorities are in the heavenly places. And 6.12 tells us that we're to put on the whole armor of God to fight against these enemies who are not flesh and blood, but they are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Jesus is seated on his throne and he is above all of these powers in the universe and also all earthly powers as well. And so this seems to emphasize at least two important things. One, that evil spiritual forces are real and two, Christ is over all of them. And so let's talk about the reality of evil for a second. Paul tells us that there are truly spiritual forces that seek to destroy the work of God and to enslave the lives of humanity. As we think about evil spirits working in the world, we might be tempted to swing one of two different erroneous directions. And C.S. Lewis is helpful in describing these two errors in the screw tape letters in his preface where he says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and love a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so the two errors he mentions is to totally disregard that there's any influence at all or to overemphasize them so much that you see a devil behind every rock and every tree, right? So to live as if they don't exist or to see them everywhere and their influence everywhere. And as you think about the reality of evil, it might seem like an obvious concept to you intellectually that, yeah, evil exists, spiritual things exist. But do you generally go about your lives as if they don't exist? How often do you come up with natural explanations for evil in the world by totally downplaying spiritual forces at work. Even as you contemplate maybe the direction that things are going in America at times, do you think that's just people running amok at times? Or do you see that there's influence behind those people pursuing things that are contrary to God? But the pendulum also swings the other way, where you might be tempted to overly emphasize the influence of the 
and the power of the demonic world. And so you're talking about it and thinking about it all the time. So which of these, which of these two extremes is the most tempting for you? And, and how do we answer them? And the answer is that Christ is over all of these forces. The most important reality is that he is over and above them, far above. His rule is far mightier and more important than theirs is. All of the enemies of the cross of Jesus are under, I'm sorry, all of the enemies of Jesus are under his rule and reign. He is even now over all things. There's not one thing that's outside of his kingly rule in all of the cosmos. Everything is under his power and authority. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too great to be under his authority. He is exalted above all, though, because of both his work and because of his nature. In Philippians 2, we hear about his work, where Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day when Christ returns and brings judgment, there will be none exempted from taking a knee before him and acknowledging his rightful rule. Either they will kneel in joy and thankfulness because they have found their salvation in Christ, that would be believers, or they will bow as defeated foes, but all will take a knee. Either way, they will proclaim Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus' work ensures his exaltation above all, but also so does his nature. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Same words. He created them all. All things were created through him and for him. So here we understand that the creator is always greater than his creation. And he's made everything, including these beings that are visible and invisible. There's no rule that's greater than his. There is no, nothing more powerful than he. There's no authority that anyone has that can stop his plans from coming to pass. Not even the most powerful spiritual beings that would cause our hearts to quake if we saw them can do anything to keep him from saving his sheep. All other dominion pales to the reality that everything is his. Even in our boasting, he is better. So you're a king, I am the king of all kings. So you say you're Lord, I am Lord of all lords. The Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. Christ Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the salvation of the world. He is God himself and he is worthy. But even as we think about that, we know that there's a present reality that's still in operation, that Satan is currently prowling around like a lion prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He has been mortally wounded. He has already been defeated in some sense, but for a time he's still here trying to, to lash out at others. I read a story this past week, but it happened a few weeks ago, where a hunter, I think in Arkansas, shot a deer 
and he walked up to the deer without the proper amount of caution, and the deer revived and, and, and stabbed him with his antlers and ultimately killed the man. Our enemy is, is a wounded and defeated enemy, and yet we still have to take him seriously. His death blow has been dealt. His fate is sealed, and yet he's still for a time roaring and, and roaming around seeking those to destroy. But it's helpful that Paul begins with the reality that Christ is more powerful than any other spiritual beings, including Satan. Because in chapter 6, he tells us that we as Christians are to battle against these same forces of darkness in the world. And though we're to suit up for the fight and put on the whole armor of God, our confidence comes not from our ability, but it, it comes in the knowledge that Jesus Christ reigns far above all of these wicked powers, and he is able to protect his church and deliver us. So when we think of the reality of these evil spiritual beings working their influence in the world, we must remember that Christ is also working his will and his plan for the salvation of his people over and against even their evil schemes. He is already victorious over those evil forces and he will one day utterly destroy them. One of the most amazing declarations that Jesus makes in the gospel of Matthew is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel message that says that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. In the picture is those gates are defensive. They're trying to keep him out. And he says, there's nothing that's going to keep me from coming in and taking my bride. He will take them and storm the gates of hell and be victorious. But again, as we think about feeling fearful and, and all these other questions, the gospel answers them. He, it answers our fears of even this most powerful of enemies by showing that Christ is greater. Paul tells us that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the one who holds us fast, our risen, exalted, and seated Savior, and will forevermore. And so, brothers, as we think about this, this beautiful reality that Christ is resurrected and then seated, I don't know if you, if you want to, but I'm going to encourage us to. Let's just, let's just take a little peek, just a little bit ahead into Ephesians 2, verse 6, because there's something amazing that he says there. In verse 6, he says that by grace you have been saved, and God raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This verse tells us that in Christ, not only are we raised up, but we are actually seated with him in the heavenly places, with Christ. This means that even now we've experienced his resurrection power in us, but making us spiritually alive, we also know he's going to resurrect our bodies to be raised them up and be glorified. But it also means that we, in some sense, are seated with Christ now. We share in a measure of his authority and his resurrection power now. And it means both now and forevermore, we will get to dwell at his side. For he is our, our, our groom, and we are his bride. And the bride always is at the side of their groom. Our dwelling place is and will forever be with our risen and reigning king. 
And so let us rejoice in that reality. We both now experience that and one day more fully we'll experience that with our own eyes. And so brothers and sisters, as we, as we transition to communion, our confidence in all of the things that we've been talking about is rooted in the reality of Christ's atoning work symbolized in this communion table. Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, made a way for us to be reconciled to holy God. He shed his blood. He allowed his body to be killed on the cross. He makes a way to make us clean by his blood. And it's through his death that we have life. But it's also because of this sacrifice, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So even in the taking of communion, we proclaim a risen and seated and ruling Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray for us, and I'll give us a little bit of instruction, but we're welcome to come to this table. The source of our salvation is Christ, and it's, it's symbolized in this meal that we're resting in him both to save us and ultimately deliver us in the future. Father, thank you that communion is this symbol pointing to this reality, Lord. It's, it's us proclaiming uh, your sacrifice, but also it's, it's, it's us proclaiming your death until you return, Lord. It's a saying that we rest in the work of Christ, for it's Christ who saves us. And Lord, it's by your blood. God, we rejoice to know that you are risen. So Father, would you lead us in joy to come to this table? Would you lead us in joy to recognize that it's by you that we have life, both now and forever, if we're in Christ? Thank you, Father. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.